Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the pew under your chair or the chair in front of you. And if you go to page 586, you'll find Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We are continuing our series of overview sermons on about six Old Testament books. We are doing Ecclesiastes this week. We did Job last Sunday. And next week, we're doing Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. So if you haven't heard a a sermon on Song of Songs, I haven't preached one on Song of Songs in 16 years. So it'll be my first time, I think. But we'll, we'll cover that next Sunday. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. And then we're going to jump to chapter 11, verse 7, and we're going to read that all the way to chapter 12 to get a sense of the whole book. Hear then the word of God from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolutely, absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before And of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Skipping to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is is the big number. This is the first time you're reading the Bible. And we're going to verse 7. That's a small number after the big number 11. 11, 7 to the end of the book. Light is sweet and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, If someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young person, while you are young and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come, and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. So as I'm about to read this, this is a sign of, this is a poetic way of describing aging and ultimately death. So I want you to picture the poetic way of describing aging and death. So remember your creator before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble, And the strong men stoop. The women who grind grain cease because they are few. Probably referring to your teeth. And the ones who watch through the window see dimly your eyes. The doors at the street are shut. 
while the sound of the mill fades, when one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song grow faint. Your hearing goes away. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. Even scared of stairs, of course, as you age. The almond tree blossoms. Hair turns white. The grasshopper loses its spring. The caper berry has no effect, for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home. And mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. And the jar is shattered at the spring. The wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters, from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by, the one, by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we pray now as we are continuing to worship you by the reading of your word and now by the exposition of it. We pray that the words and goal of this book would control the words and goal of the sermon and would shape the thoughts and goal of our life. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Give us eyes to see. Give us a soft heart to feel the weight of this truth and behold the glory of Jesus Christ. We can do none of this except waste our time this morning if your spirit does not come. And so, Father, we ask you to come now and glorify your Son in your word by your Spirit's power because we desperately need it. Our children, as they learn about the gospel, even in children's class, they desperately need it. And all the churches ringing forth with the gospel this morning here in Southern California and around the world, we pray that your Spirit would move mightily and take the weak words of men and the strong words of your Bible and change lives and raise the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Does anything last? Happiness seems so short-lived. Life is cut short by death. Even when you're expecting to die on your deathbed, it still comes suddenly, doesn't it? You're never really ready for it. And when we think about the shortness of happiness and the surprising creeping up of death, we ask questions like, what's the point of life? What is the meaning of life? How would you answer that question? What is the meaning of life? As Christians, we know that there, has been, that there has to be meaning to life, and we want to live meaningful lives. We're not here this morning to merely waste our time. We're here to think about the meaning of life and to grow in living meaningful lives. But how can we do this with everything changing around us, with everything disappearing sh and everything shifting around us? 
And then there's death all around us. Death isn't all around us in the way it was 150 years ago in our land. We have cemeteries in certain places. We have ways of making the body look as alive as possible. And we hide children from seeing death in our sanitized society. And yet we still can't hide it. We try to put it away, get it out of our minds. And yet death is still all around us. And we feel that reality. The world is cursed and broken and groaning because of death, because of sin. So we ask the question again, what's the, what's the point of living? Why should I continue to live? Uh, inside, we feel unsure about the point of living. And sometimes we're scared to say it out loud in church settings, in a church gathering. Here we are with our church family. We might fear sharing any doubts about the meaning of life and the point of our lives because we're supposed to look like we're strong spiritually, right? We don't want to share or show weakness. At least we're tempted to hide that. So how do we rise above the meaninglessness, the futility in this cursed and broken world? That's the question. How do we rise above the meaninglessness, the futility, the vanity of everything in this world? And the answer is the main goal of what I think the main goal of this book is and the main goal of the sermon, which is this. Enjoy every moment by fearing God so that you rise above the cursed and meaninglessness of earthly life. I'll say that two more times. There's a place for notes if you want to take some notes on the insert um, behind the hymn, hymn insert one. Here's the main goal. Enjoy every moment by fearing God so that you rise above the cursed meaninglessness of earthly life. Simple command. Enjoy every moment. How? By fearing God. Why? So that you rise above the cursed meaninglessness of earthly life. In this book, we learn a couple of major ways to live wisely in this broke, broken and fleeting world. So here they are. Feel and fear. Okay? Feel and fear. That summarizes how we live wisely. Feel and fear. What are we to feel? Firstly, let us feel, point one is this, feel the meaninglessness of everything. Feel the meaninglessness of everything. That's the point in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, right? Go back to chapter 1 in your Bible. He says here in verse 2, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile, or vanity of vanities, futility of futilities. In Hebrew, there is no word for best or absolute. So if you're the best king, you are the king of kings. And if you're the Lord over all other lords, you're the best Lord, you are Lord of lords. So when it says vanity of vanities, very famously, right, in the King James Version, vanity of vanities, it's absolute to the maximum possibility of vanity, of meaninglessness. That's what it is. Everything is vanity. Everything is futile. Everything is meaningless. Now, there's a little bit of debate here. What does meaningless mean or futility? I'm going to use the word meaningless rather than futile, even though in our CSB translation it says futile. Just keep in mind that I'm using meaningless here. Um, for and you'll, you'll see why in a second or towards the end of the sermon. But it, I think the NIV says meaningless. Same, same meaning, essentially, pointlessness. But what does meaningless mean in chapter one? Look at chapter one again. We read it, but let me just show you. Meaningless or futility means that there's no gain. In, cha in, chap in verse three of chapter one, there's no gain for all your efforts. In verse four, there's no permanence. Generation goes and a generation comes and nothing remains forever except the earth, but not us. 
In verse 7, there's no fullness. In verse 8, there's no relief from wearisomeness. In verse 8 as well, there's no satisfaction. There's no being filled. There's always a, a sense of emptiness. In verse 9, nothing is new. Everything is old, boring, stale. And in verse 11, there's no remembrance. Everything is forgotten. You will be forgotten. Your life will be forgotten. All of the moments that make up your day will be forgotten. All of it. It's futile. It's meaningless. Now, meaningless is a theological interpretation. It's not an actual linguistic translation of the word. The word can actually mean vapor or breath. So, this is what it is. Here's a vapor, right? Or a breath. So, there it is. Everything is there and it's gone. Spray it where the song team was earlier. Just kidding. Just kidding, wife. No. Everything is meaningless. And if everything is a vapor, if your fame is a vapor, your life is a vapor, then if that's all it is and it's gone, that's why it's meaningless. The literal translation is everything is a vapor. Everything is a breath. I mean, do you remember the breath you took six weeks ago? You don't remember it. You just take it and it goes, right? You just breathe out and you just keep going on with life. But your life is one breath. Just one. Everything is a breath. Everything is fading. Everything is a vapor. And because it's a vapor or a breath, in effect, it's meaningless because it goes away so fast. So one of your own rock stars has even said, I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try, and I try, and I try. And he has tried. And he, he couldn't get any satisfaction. So let's look at the different categories of things that are vapor. I have here, let's see, um, six things that are a vapor. Six categories of things that are vapors. And there's more in this text, but we're doing an overview. Okay, so six things here under everything is meaningless or everything is a vapor. Pleasure is meaningless. That's the first one here. Pleasure is meaningless, or pleasure is a vapor. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Pleasure is a vapor. Um, the teacher, Solomon, here writes, I think it's Solomon. It might not be. There's a debate about that, but we could talk about that later. The point still stands. I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be meaningless, futile, Vanity. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? What is laughter? What is pleasure? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body. Wine feels good. My mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly. I experimented trying these pleasures until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. In verse 8, Second part of verse 8, I gathered male and female singers for myself, so I had the pleasures of music, and many concubines, the delights of men. If you know anything about Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, pleasure slaves. He tried it all, and to him it's meaningless. It's, this is pleasure. It's there and it's gone. Solomon tried this. He found out that it was meaningless. David fell into lustful adultery and found out the meaninglessness of such pleasure. 
when you cut your understanding of these things from God, it especially feels meaningless. And people even start to philosophize that it's meaningless. So when we talk about sensual pleasure, what, what is physical intimacy made for? What context? For what relationship? The what? The marriage relationship, right? One man, one woman become one flesh, and the expression of that one flesh union is sexual intimacy. And when you cut it off from that, it literally becomes meaningless. It loses its meaning. You lessen the meaning of it. So one other music group, I'm going to be quoting a few today probably, or celebrities and others because Ecclesiastes is so relevant, but there's one song that says, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. Just animals. No image bearing. No meaning to intimacy. It's meaningless. It literally is meaningless. That's an expression of the meaninglessness that life falls into because everything is a vapor. So not just pleasures is a vapor. Secondly, possessions are a vapor. Or possessions and power are vapors. Look at chapter 2 again, verses 4 through 10. He has possessions and power, and yet it's still a vapor. Here he says, I increased my achievements, verse 4. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female. So this is King Solomon. You know, when you're a kid, you build Lego sets and things like that, and you feel really accomplished. Well, he's the king of Israel. He gets to build huge Lego sets of real industry and real, real societal building blocks here, real city planning, and yet it's still futile. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I owned livestock, large herds and flocks. I had money more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself. And treasure and the treasure of kings and provinces. Verse 9, I became great and suppressed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. You know, when you struggle through something and then you accomplish something, you feel good about it, right? It's a big accomplishment. So he would take pleasure in his struggle because he would accomplish things at the end of the struggle. Yet, verse 11, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be meaningless and the pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Possessions, power, a vapor, again, meaningless. Jim Carrey wrote or said in an interview fairly recently, I guess getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you are still unhappy. That's where he is. And that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more. And then you realize, my gosh, it's not about this. And I wish for everyone, he says, I wish for everyone to be able to accomplish those things so they can see that. I got everything I ever dreamed of, career-wise, money-wise, and yet... It's not what it's about. He wishes everyone can see that. And the good news from Ecclesiastes is we don't need to accomplish all our dreams to see that. We can read Ecclesiastes and see that, right? We can have God's grace speak in and break into our lives to teach us these things. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to see it, to really see it. There's not just power. There's uh, So possessions and power are not only vapors. Thirdly, work is a vapor. In chapter 2, verse 18, going on, I hated all my work, 
that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over my work and give... And, and that I labored and skillfully, I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is meaningless. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is meaningless and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. You can work, 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 and yet you leave it to somebody else, and they can mess it all up. You can build a company, and then they mess it all up. You can do a good job, and then you're replaced by the next employee, and they mess it all up. You can strengthen a church. Uh, for me, as a pastor, you can try to help build a healthy church and, uh, by God's grace, and then the next generation, you know, it, nothing lasts. Kevin Durant said after winning his first NBA championship, I learned that much hasn't changed. I thought it would, be, I thought it would fill a certain void, and it didn't. I got my, I worked hard, put in the work, accomplished what I wanted to, still got the void, thought it was going to be gone. Apparently it's not. It's meaningless. So not only is work a vapor, wealth is a vapor. We read some of Solomon's wealth there in, in chapter two. Look at chapter four, verses seven and eight. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without companion, without even a son or a brother, four, eight. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches, who am I asking, who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. In chapter 5, verses 10 through 17, he says, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is meaningless. When good things increase, the one who consume them multiply, right? When you get rich, other people want your riches. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? Yeah, I gotta look at your money. Verse 12, the sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep, right? When you don't have a lot of money, you don't have to worry about things. But more money, more problems. There's an article on the NewYorkDailyNews.com, The Curse of the Lottery, Tragic Stories of Big Jackpot Winners. It says, quote, winning isn't everything. It's more likely you'll get struck by lightning than win the Powerball. But if you do win, there's an even better chance that you'll go broke. Nearly 70% of lottery winners end up broke within seven years. Even worse, several winners have died tragically or witnessed those close to them suffer. Edward Eugle, the author of the book Money or Nothing, One Man's Journey Through the Dark Side of Lottery Millions, told the Daily Beast, of the thousands of lottery winners he's known, few were happy and only a small number lived happily ever after. Out of thousands, you would be blown away to see how many winners wish they'd never won. Eugle said, one of the unlucky winners was Abraham Shakespeare. Just weeks before Shakespeare was killed for his money, he told his mother he wished he never won. Wealth is meaningless. Having a lot of money is meaningless. You think that's going to solve your problems? You're wrong. Remember the man who had lots of crops and then he built bigger barns? Jesus tells a story in the parable. And he says, ah, at last, I'll build big barns. And then God says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Money is meaningless. 
Look at chapter 7, verse 10. We have a, a fifth thing that's meaningless here in chapter 7, verse 10. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? Since it is not wise of you to ask this. You know what else is a vapor? You know what else is meaningless? Memories. Memories are a vapor. Memories are meaningless. Sweet memories. Now, do we want to remember things? Isn't it good to remember things? We look at losing your memory, Alzheimer's and things along that line as a tragedy. So, so is memory meaningless? Well, he says here, don't say, why were the former days better than these? Don't go back to your memory since it's not wise for you to ask this. Sweet memories and nostalgia become sour and bitter when you cling to what is a vapor. You cling to memories in an idolatrous way. That's like trying to make a vapor last forever, straining after wind. You get nostalgic and you remember the past with rose-colored glasses and it's not exactly what you remembered it to be. Yesterday, writes Paul McCartney and John Lennon, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. You look at yesterday and you say, oh man, when I was a kid, some of you, some of you had horrific childhoods in terms of being victimized. I understand that. But some of us look back with childhood with nostalgia and gladness and happiness and you think, man, if I can only go back to those days. Do you remember how bored you were sometimes and how you wish you were always older? You couldn't wait to drive. You couldn't wait to grow up. You don't remember that when you're looking back. You just remember all the good stuff, right? You don't remember that you couldn't sleep when you wanted to or have an extra chocolate chip cookie? Wow. You don't remember those days. You just remember all the good stuff. You're, you're nostalgic about your past. You don't, you, it's selective memory. Memories are fleeting. It's meaningless. And then surprisingly, in chapter 2, go back to chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, surprisingly, Wisdom is a vapor. Wisdom is meaningless. Bible knowledge is meaningless. Good theology and good application of theology is a vapor and meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. Now, we gotta, what do we mean by that? Go to chapter 2, verse 12. Solomon's gonna, he's gonna qualify it a little bit here. Then I turn to consider wisdom madness and folly for what will the king's successor look be like he will do what he has already done verse 13 and i realize that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly oh good there's an advantage like the advantage of light over darkness the wise person has his, has eyes in his head but the fool walks in darkness so at least the wise person knows where he's going he's aware of reality that's what we've been talking about as we've been defining wisdom yet it's not all good yet i also knew that one fate comes to them both so I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. I'm wise, he's a fool, but we, what's going to happen to him is going to happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this also, this wisdom is also what? Futile, meaningless, vanity. Therefore I hated life because the work that was done, I'm sorry, I'm in, um, 60 now, for just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything 
is meaningless and a pursuit of the wind. Wow, why are we spending an hour in Bible exposition? Why do we do Bible studies? What am I doing studying and taking time to prepare these lessons if it really is meaningless? It's meaningless. Why? Why does he say it's meaningless? Because we're all going to what? We're all going to die. Whether you're a fool or you're wise, whether you have good theology or bad theology, you're going to die and you're going to be forgotten and your life is going to be forgotten and your works are going to be forgotten and your words are going to be forgotten. You have the same fate as a fool. Death is coming. Death equalizes all. And so Solomon says, it's better to be wise than a fool, but in the end, it's the same. You zero out. So to summarize, you can chase and grasp all of these different vapors, try to grasp that, catch that. It's gone. That's all these things, whether it's pleasure, possessions, power, work, wealth, memory, wisdom, theology. Everything is a vapor. Everything is a breath. Everything is a wind. Therefore, everything is meaningless. Everything is futile. Everything is vanity. So Christian, wake up. Take this message to heart. Everything you do is fleeting. It's a vapor. It's all meaningless because you're going to die and you will be forgotten. As a church family, what does it mean for us as a church? One of our members here has been a member of this church since, nine, since for 55 years. Another member has been a member here for 53 years. They've seen a lot of different things going on in this church that we barely know about. They have seen many people sit in this building that are gone. And you'll be gone too. I'm brushing my teeth last night in the parsonage, the pastor's house, and thinking, how many pastors lived here before I lived here? How many pastors are going to live here after I'm gone? And we'll be forgotten, just like the other pastors before. Life goes on, and the next generation will forget us. So Ecclesiastes says, all is meaningless, it's futile, it's fleeting like a vapor. Our church and our families and our friendships will be forgotten. Our accomplishments will be forgotten. You want to build a name for this church? Build a name for Bethany Baptist Church? Your name will be forgotten. Our name will be forgotten. If you're not a Christian, how do you deal with the emptiness and meaninglessness of your life? I haven't given much hope to Christians yet. Our society is so busy with entertainment and industry, but they can only ignore the humming background of death so long. You can distract yourself from death, but you can't distract yourself too much longer. Death is coming, and it's coming to you quicker than you think. So what's the main goal? Enjoy every moment by fearing God so that you rise above the cursed meaninglessness of life. Do you feel the meaninglessness of everything? That's what I'm trying to communicate here in my sermon because point one, the long point, is realize everything is meaningless. Feel it. You need to feel it. Not just know it here, you need to feel it if you're going to be wise. But secondly, not only feel, what did I say? Feel and what? Fear. Go to, let's go to the end of the book, Ecclesiastes 12. What's the solution then? Don't just give me problems, PJ. Give me solutions. All right. I'll give you a solution. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. When all has been said, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Okay, if everything's meaningless, what should we do? Answer, fear God and keep his commands. There it is. There, there's, that's, so point number two. Point number one is feel the meaninglessness of everything. Point number two is fear God over everything and in everything. Fear God over everything and fear God in everything. That's what wisdom is, right? Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. 
So fearing God is your solution. That's your way out. What is fearing God? Fearing God is an attitude of trusting God and his word in a way that you respect, revere, and treasure God. It's an attitude towards God where you trust him and his word. You revere him. That's what fearing God is. Okay, what, what, what does it mean to fear God? In chapter 5, verse 1, look at 5.1. 5.1 and 2, was re- Chris read it earlier for a call to worship. But if you're going to fear God, this is step one of fear God. The very first command in the whole book is in chapter 5. You don't get any commands to you until chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the command. First command. If you get one command, the main command, first command is often, not always, but often the main command in the book, in a book of the Bible. Here it is. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. There's the first command. Better to approach in obedience than to offer sacrifices as fools do, for they are ignorantly, for they ignorantly do wrong. Don't be hasty to speak and don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be what? Few. What is that saying? When you go to the house of God, when you go to the temple in the Old Covenant, what's the house of God in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? Church, us, right? And us, not the building. This is not the house of God. This is the house of God. Bethany Baptist Church is the house of God. When you come to the house of God, what do you expect to see? Who do you expect to hear from? From God, right? So when you come to God's house, you need to come with how many words? Few words. Who should do, all the, who should do most of the talking? God or us? God. He's in heaven. We are on earth. Let your words be few. To use James' language, be slow to speak, quick to listen. We come to church with our opinions and our perspectives and our convictions and, and, and what we want to say. And that's not the way you approach God. If you're going to fear God and keep his commands, you need to hear God. You need to humble yourself and listen without words. You're not the expert. I'm not the expert. God is. God is in heaven. You're on earth. If you're going to fear God, you need to be quiet before God. Not just with your mouth, but with your heart. To still yourself. Be still before God. Or to use Isaiah's words, tremble at his words. That's the key to fearing God. You fear you approach God carefully in chapter 5, quietly, faithfully, with keeping your word and fearfully in verse 7. Chapter 8, go to to chapter 8. Let's think a little bit more about fearing God. Here it says, um, if you're going to fear God and God knows everything and you don't know everything, how should, what, should you try to figure out all the mysteries of this world? Actually, just answer that. Should you try to figure out all the mysteries of this world? Yes or no? No. And, and you, you know that. Verse 16 of chapter 8. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the activity that is done on the earth, even though one's eyes do not close in sleep day or night, I observed all the work of God. I observed all the work of God and concluded that a person is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. They can't discover it. Even though a person labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if a wise person claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. You cannot know the mysteries of everything God's doing on this earth. So what should you do? Be quiet, still your heart, and listen to his words. Come to his house, come to his people, hear him speak, see the glory of Christ in his word preached, and receive it without trying to know the answer to absolutely everything. Trust God's providence. One unknown author wrote this, this um, piece called Good Luck, Bad Luck. Have you heard this? Good Luck, Bad Luck? I'll, I'll read it. There's a Chinese story of a farmer who used an old horse to till his fields. 
One day the horse escaped into the hills and when the farmer's neighbors sympathized with the old man over his bad luck, the farmer replied, bad luck, good luck, who knows? A week later, the horse returned with a herd of horses from the hills and this time the neighbors congratulated the farmer for his good luck. His reply was, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Then when the farmer's son was attempting to tame one of the wild horses, he fell off its back and broke his leg. Everyone thought this very bad luck. Not the farmer, whose only reaction was, bad luck, good luck, who knows? Some weeks later, the army marched into the village and conscripted every able-bodied youth they found there. When they saw the, son's far, the farmer's son with a broken leg, they let him off. Now, was that good luck or bad luck? Who knows? Everything that seemed on the surface to be an evil may be a good in disguise. And everything that seems good on the surface may really be evil. So we are wise when we leave it to God to decide what is good fortune and what is misfortune and thank him that all things turn out for the good of those who love him. It's folly to try to figure everything out. Trust God, fear God, keep his commands. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what he has revealed is for us and for our children. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Be content with that. And then there's this other drumbeat of a command that just keeps coming and coming in the book over and over again. So fearing God is the big one, but then there's, there's this repeated command throughout the book. Let's just read them, okay? So you're gonna need to start in chapter two. So if you're gonna fear God, you need to also enjoy life. Let me just read to you several verses about enjoying life. It's, it's scattered throughout the book. It's like a break every time you feel overwhelmed by the meaninglessness. There's a break of, by the way, enjoy life. And then you feel meaningless, enjoy life. Meaninglessness, enjoy life. And so um, let's just look at these, these um, reliefs. Chapter two, verses 24 to 26. There's nothing better for a person than to what? What's his advice? Eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that the, even this is from God's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? So here, eat and, and, and drink because it comes from God's hand and it's pleasing in his sight. Go to chapter five. Chapter five, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to what? To eat and drink and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of life that God has given him. Because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. So God, so enjoy life. These are from God. Your life is from God. Your days are from God. Your distractions are from God. God wants you, God, it says there at the end of, um, God keeps his heart occupied with the joy. He keeps your heart occupied so that you don't get into despair and depression. Chapter seven, verses 14 and 15. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover anything that will come after him. Enjoy the good days so that when you have the bad days, you can still remember the good days. Chapter eight, verses 14 and 15 says the same thing. There's futility that is done on earth. There are righteous people who get 
the, what actions the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. So it's all futile. So I commended enjoyment because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy himself, for this will accompany him in his labor during the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. So enjoy life. Life isn't fair. Sometimes the wicked benefit. Sometimes the righteous suffer, but enjoy what you can. Chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Go eat your, ble- your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength because there's no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. You're gonna die, so enjoy life with your wife while you have it, while you have the opportunity. Chapter 11, he tells you to rejoice. In verse nine, rejoice in your days. Run with all that you wanna do. Remove sorrow. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse one, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember? Chapter three, go back one more. Chapter three, verse 22. One more here in terms of just filling out what this idea of joy is. We still have a few more verses to go, but here on this part. 3.22. I have seen that there's nothing better than for a person to do what? Enjoy his what? His activities, because that is his reward. Why? Why? Why should he enjoy it? For who can enable him to see what will happen after he what? He dies. You're gonna die, so enjoy your activities. Is your life characterized by joy? Are you enjoying? Are you fearing God and enjoying what God gives you for your short time? Are you constantly giving God thanks? If you're not a Christian, how can you truly enjoy these fleeting moments? I I, I ask you, non-Christian friend. Do you think about death often? Children, I see some children here. Children, do you think about death often? You should. I still remember a sermon when I was in high school that um, Scott Bashur, a pastor here in Buena Park, Buena Park Bible Church, he preached when I was in high school and he said, he opened a sermon with, is it better to go to a funeral or a party? And then he read Ecclesiastes. It's better to go to a funeral because the living take it to heart. Think about death, children. It's scary. Parents don't want you, sometimes we parents don't want you to think about it because we don't know what to say. That's, you need to feel the meaninglessness. Parents, spouses, I know you're often just trying to make it through the day, but enjoy the routines that you temporarily get to have in your life. Single, single members, does singleness seem like God is not good and that there's more to complain about than rejoice in? Don't believe Satan's lie. God is good to you there. Enjoy the days of singleness. Enjoy the days of marriage. Enjoy the days, enjoy, you have this moment and then you're gone, so enjoy your days. If you're an employee, do you enjoy work and do you enjoy God in your work? Work is fleeting. Enjoy God in your work. Students, do you enjoy learning in your, in your classes so that you can learn more and enjoy God in your learning? Senior saints, retirees, are you enjoying God in your days of retirement? Are you enjoying your moments? That's what, that's what the teacher would have you do. But why should you enjoy your days and moments? If it's all fleeting and meaningless, okay, PJ, this doesn't make sense. If everything, if I feel the meaninglessness of everything and I'm supposed to fear God and enjoy everything, I, how could I enjoy it when it's meaningless, right? It's okay, fine, I'll enjoy it because the Bible tells me to, but it's still meaningless, right? 
Well, maybe. You're in chapter three, right? Here's two points, two principles about why you need to enjoy God in everything. Look at 3.17. I said to myself, God, God will judge the righteous and the what? And the wicked, since there is a time for every act. So what is there gonna be? There's gonna be what? Judgment. And then verse 18, I said to myself, this happened so that God may test who? The children of Adam, and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. So two things here. Why should you enjoy God in everything? Because you're going to be what? Judged. Chapter 12, same thing. Fear God and keep his commandments because it says in 12, I'm going there now, 12, 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Why should you enjoy God in everything? Because God will judge you for everything. All of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions, all of your good, all of your bad, everything hidden and known, God will judge you for it all. So you might as well enjoy him in everything because you will have to give an account. You will stand judgment. We will give an account for our engaging in this world, whether it be in wisdom or work or wealth or power or possessions or pride or people or pleasures. We will give an account for everything we have done under the sun here on earth. We will stand judgment. You will be judged for everything. No secrets. Not on judgment day. So can we stand? Can we stand before the judge of the earth who knows everything we've ever done? Can we stand before the God who's holy, holy, holy and say, we feared you. I feared you. I kept your commands. Have you feared and enjoyed God in everything? In your life under the sun? So what's our way out? We need to look above and beyond the sun. You need to get your eyes off of earth up to heaven and see the one who descended from heaven and subjected himself under the sun on earth. He subjected himself to this world that's cursed and broken and sinful. Jesus showed us in his life that he was not wrapped up in pleasure, pride, or power, but he feared God and what? Kept his what? Kept his commands in light of the future judgment. Jesus feared God, and, he's, and he kept his commandments, so he's free from the judgment, right? He doesn't need to be judged for sin because he never sinned. And yet, on the cross, Jesus was judged. Jesus was condemned. Jesus was damned for all of your hidden sins, for all of your thoughts, for all of your words, for everything you've ever done, for every single sin of every single sinner who would ever believe in Christ. Jesus was judged, he underwent death, and in his death, death died. Judgment was satisfied. And then Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday. And so all of those who trust in Jesus and have been forgiven by Jesus or in Jesus because they have not feared God and have not kept his commands, in him we are forgiven and freed from our sins so that we are now enabled and empowered to truly fear God and keep his commands beginning with the command to repent from our sins and trust in Jesus. That's what fearing God begins with. And then as we continually repent and believe in our lives, this flows out in the effective keeping of the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus is the true son of David. Solomon failed. The author of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes means teacher or assembly leader. He's the one who, Ecclesia is assembly. Ecclesiastes is the assembly leader, the assembly gatherer, the assembler. Greater than Solomon, the assembler, the Ecclesiastes. We have Jesus, the Lord of David, the true teacher, the true assembly leader, the true Ecclesiastes, the true king. So church family, Christian, cling to Jesus's judgment for you. Prepare for your judgment because your judgment day is still coming. Christ died for all your sins. He's given you his righteousness and yet you will still be judged for all your works. So prepare for that day. Bethany Baptist Church, why are we gathering here this Sunday? You know why we're gathering every Sunday? We are gathering to prepare each other for judgment day. That's why we're here. We greet each other, we sing together, we hang out with each other, we deepen friendships, we initiate new friendships here to prepare each other for judgment day. We gospelize one another, we disciple one another collectively and individually because we will all be judged individually and even collectively. If you're not a Christian, here's the sweetest news in the world. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He took the, the punishment and the penalty you deserve so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in him, you too can be forgiven and saved. So if you're going to, what's, what's our two points here to, to summarize? If we're gonna enjoy every moment by fearing God so that we rise above the curse and meaninglessness of earthly life, we need to feel the meaninglessness of everything. That's point number one. Point number two is what? Fear who? Fear God over and in what? Everything. And as I close, I actually have a third point, and it's really short, but I have a third point. So I said, feel, fear, and feel again. What do I want you to feel? First, you were, why is everything meaningless? Because we were ignoring God with everything we did. Everything is meaningless apart from God. We breathe in God-ignoring air, John Piper says. But this God-ignoring air turns to God-communing air when you fear God and enjoy Him in everything. Everything, so once you start enjoying God in everything, Everything has meaning because of God's judgment. Everything has meaning because of God's pleasure. God loves and has, God infuses meaning into everything. So feel the meaninglessness of everything, but also feel the what? Meaningfulness of everything. Everything has meaning now. And God delights in it all. G.K. Chesterton wrote on, in this piece called The Ethics of Elfland, Listen to this heart. Listen to the heart of God in, in his meaning and everything. The sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. Now to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are, they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But, her, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and to every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. 
It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The problem is not with God. The wonder is lost with us. Everything has meaning. God infuses meaning into the making of a daisy, to the rising of the sun again, and the setting of the sun again. Everything has meaning because God will judge us for everything and because God delights in everything. Or to put it another way, the whole earth is full of his what? His glory. And death is defeated, therefore everything is meaningful. So feel the meaning, feel meaningfulness. Memories are meaningful now. Wealth is meaningful. Work is meaningful. Power is meaningful. Possessions are meaningful. Pleasures are meaningful. Wisdom is meaningful. Not by bypassing death, but by looking past death to the rising from death. Enjoy. So here's my main goal. Here's the main point, and I'm closing now. Let me rephrase my main goal of the sermon because I left out one very important word. Enjoy every meaningful moment by fearing God so that you rise above the cursed meaninglessness of earthly life. Do you get that? There's a point of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy every meaningful moment by fearing God so that you rise above the cursed meaninglessness of earthly life. Feel the meaninglessness of everything, fear God over everything, and then in that, feel the meaningfulness of everything. My call to you, brothers and sisters, enjoy Christ in every moment, moment by moment, whatever you're going through and whatever amount God reveals to you in that moment. If you don't enjoy God in every moment, you will waste your life with regret. You will live off of lies and you'll feel a deep and scary emptiness that nothing can fill. But if you enjoy Christ in every moment, your life will have true meaning. You will invest your fleeting life wisely for the good of others. And even though we will all be forgotten, we won't be forgotten on judgment day and for eternity. You will taste and see in this life that God is good in, through, and over everything. And then you'll realize in the new earth that everything you did will actually be remembered and everything will have its meaning revealed. So what's the meaning of life? Some say to glorify God by enjoying him now and forever. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, fear God and keep his commands. Father, take this word, hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. And when we sin, may we go back to Christ, the true teacher, the son of David, the one who feared you and kept, his, kept your commands and yet was slaughtered and condemned for our sins. Teach us to feel the meaninglessness of everything in light of death, to fear you in everything, and then to feel the meaningfulness of everything in Christ. Teach us even now, as we're going to share with each other, to enjoy Christ in every little moment. In Jesus' name, amen.